Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. The umpire was late for the game. Everybody was waiting on him, so he was going a little too fast when he passes the police officer. Officer pulls him over, walks up to the window, and begins to write the ticket. The umpire said, come on, officer, I'm an umpire. There's a game going on. I'm supposed to be there. Everybody's waiting on me. Can't you give me a pass just this one time? The officer finishes writing the ticket, hands it to the umpire and says, have a nice day. About a week later, the umpire is uh, reffing one of these club league games. When he looks up and that same police officer is on the on-deck circle. And when the police officer steps to the plate, he recognizes the umpire. There's a pause, then he says, uh, uh, how'd that ticket work out for you? And the umpire said, let me put it this way, you better swing at everything. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? You better swing at everything. That's our world today. There's no getting over or wrong. Uh, whatever you do, it's going to come back on you. There's no way to find forgiveness or hope. You know, they call it the cancel culture. And that's true out there. That's not true in here. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus never cancels you? No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how many times you did it, Jesus never cancels you. In fact, his grace and mercy are sufficient for everything that we'll ever do. Not only the sins we did, the sins we do, the sins we're going to do. And there's a beautiful symbol that Christ gave us to remind us constantly about the, uh, the uh, continuing aspect of grace. And that symbol is baptism. And I want to talk about baptism today. I want to go back to John chapter 1. Uh, we skipped it as in our study of John. We're studying the gospel of John. And we skipped it because we had grad Sunday, and I thought it would be better for us to deal with the calling of disciples for those graduates. And then we had Mother's Day, and so we talked about turning the water to wine and Mary saying, whatever he says to you, do it. But let's back up and let's go back and look at John. We skipped chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, and let's, let's see this for a couple of reasons. Not only uh, to help us to understand the unique nature of John's baptism in relationship to Jesus. Because some of you guys are going to be studying the book of Acts, for example, and you're going to come across stories in the book of Acts where an individual was out there uh, who was only familiar with John's baptism and had not been baptized into Jesus. And when I say baptized into Jesus, I mean immersed in the relationship with Christ. That's what that means. Not necessarily in the name of Jesus, but walking in the nature of Christ, right? And John's baptism was different than that, and we'll see that cleared up here. But more importantly, for us to really understand the power of this symbol and what baptism really means, uh, because it's such an important aspect, and every single believer is called to be baptized. So let's start in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. Now, remember, this is John the Baptist. It's, it's a little bit confusing because we're reading the Gospel of John, which was written by the disciple John, who was also an apostle. This is not that John in verse 19. It says, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. That's who it was. When the Jews uh, sent to him priests uh, and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So John is baptizing in the Jordan River, and everybody in the world is coming to him. 
And so the religious leaders say, we need to get to the bottom of this. And so they send out a delegation to find out what's going on. Now, John's baptism wasn't particularly novel in terms of baptisms. You may not know this, but the Jews practice a ritual of immersion called tevelah. And even it went back thousands of years, even many synagogues, even today, still have a baptismal called a mikvah. And it's a part of where they do this thing called tevelah. And tevelah was done for two reasons. First, to restore ritual purification. And secondly, to prepare for some religious festival or experience, okay? And so John is doing both of those things. He is uh, doing it out of purification, and he's doing it out of preparation. But what was novel about John, in in contrast to the Jews, is it was non-ritualistic. He wasn't uh, preparing them for, for some ritualistic festival. He was preparing them for the coming Messiah. And he wasn't purifying them uh, through some ritualistic practice. He was purifying them, calling them to personal repentance. And at the core of it was relationship versus ritual. You see, I can do ritual and never give my heart to Jesus. I can do ritual and hold myself far from God. And I can just go through the motions of mindless, monotonous ritual. That's not what John was about here. John is calling people to repentance, which is a transformation of their heart, calling them to give their hearts fully over to God. And the whole world was going to him. If you uh, go over to Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 5, and you see a companion uh, uh, telling of this story, then Jerusalem was going out to him, Look at this, all Judea, that's all the southern region, all the district around the Jordan, so lots and lots of people. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So it's a, it's a very personal, it's a very relational thing. And some Pharisees and Sadducees showed up. Those are the religious leaders of the day. And they wanted to ride this baptismal train because as spiritual leaders, they began to realize this was something that was important to the people. And by virtue of that, they needed to get on board with it, right? And so they show up and they're like, oh, baptize us too. And I can just see them in all their fancy robes and all that stuff. And John, look what he says to them. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. I mean, now you got to kind of set the scene here. This is a, a prophet in the wilderness who's wearing camel clothes and eating locusts. He's a bug eater. And these dignitaries show up that everybody kind of looks up to as spiritual leaders. And the first thing he does is he calls them a, a, a tangle of snakes. And then he refuses to baptize them. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, uh, this isn't some game we play. This isn't some parade we're putting on here. This is authentic, important, confessional repentance. So why don't you show me through your actions how you're repenting in order to be baptized? And, you know, I I wasn't there, so, you know, obviously I don't know how it played out, but I can only imagine how furious these self-important Jewish leaders felt at John. And so they go home and talk it over, and they cook up this sort of half-baked little inquisition that we see happening in John chapter 1. So let's go back there. Remember the Levites and priests had showed up, and they said, who are you? Uh, First question was, are you the Messiah? 
Verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one. I'm not that guy. They were all kind of expecting that guy. And so they said, well, are you Elijah? Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. That's an odd question, isn't it? Why would you think I'm Elijah? Well, it goes back to Malachi And in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, they predicted that before the Messiah comes, Elijah would come. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so they're asking him, are you Elijah? Now they were looking for the actual, literal reincarnation of Elijah. And that wasn't John. And John's like, no, I'm, you know, I'm not Elijah. I'm just John, right? But Jesus would later say, if you really want to understand it spiritually and symbolically, yes, John was Messiah. I mean, was Elijah. He was the one who came to prepare the way. But in that case, he said no. And so then they asked, what about the prophet? Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And that's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Uh, Are you this guy that we're looking for as the prophet? And so now they're flustered and they're like, well, then who are you? Look at what they say. Uh, Verse 22, they said to him, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And I love this characteristic humility of John. He said, I'm a voice. Don't you love that? I'm a voice. The messenger isn't important, only the message. I'm just a voice, a voice you're hearing. You know, years ago when when we lived near a a football stadium, in the evenings, you could hear the JV game through the loudspeaker, and it would kind of echo off the trees and off the rooftops of the various houses around. You couldn't really tell where it was coming from, just so-and-so makes a tackle, and she's going like that. And Matthew was about three years old, and he's standing out there, and he hears that voice, and he looks up and he says, I love you, Jesus. <laughs> and he ran over to me and he said, Dad, Dad. I said, what? And he goes, Jesus is talking to me. I said, what'd he say? He said he likes apple pie. (laughs) I said, what'd you tell him? He said, I told him I like apple pie too. And then he ran off to get another word from Jesus. You know, that's the image that I get of John. It's just a voice just echoing through the treetops. Repent, repent the authentic voice of the Holy Spirit speaking into the lives of people. Not not that John was important, but the voice, and you need to listen to it. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, make uh, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Just typical humility. I'm not the one that's important. And and you see this repeatedly in John. I'm not worthy to untie his his shoelaces. I, uh, I must decrease, he must increase, that kind of stuff with John. He's basically saying, I'm just the opening act. The main event's going to be here shortly. And that made them challenge his authority. Well, if you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet and you're not the Messiah, then by what authority are you doing this stuff? Verse 24, now when uh, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, where are you getting the authority to do all this stuff? John doesn't dignify it with an answer. Instead, he just sticks to the message. And here's what he basically says. I'm just a nobody telling everybody about a somebody. That's all I'm doing. 
It's not about me. I'm just a nobody telling everybody about a somebody. And then he shared Christ. Uh, Verse 26, John answered and said to them, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's doing what we need to do. He's doing what you, man, we got to get our heads around this. He's not trying to fight. He's not getting into the flesh. He's just lifting up Jesus. I mean, we live in a world and a culture that's gone sideways and off the rails, and it's like it's so hard for us to to not want to dive in and become a part of the argument and just thinking that we could change things if we could just win an argument, you know? And and we got to be reminded that we're called to a different kingdom. This king, our kingdom is not of this earth. How many times did Jesus say that? And yet it's hard for us. I remember hearing a sermon by Tony Evans, one of the best sermons I ever heard. And he was talking about kingdom and and living in this world. And he said, you know, uh, he said, you're wrapping yourself in a political party as if the politics was going to solve the problem. Let me tell you all a little secret about politicians. They live to get reelected. First they get elected. And then what's your plan? Well, my plan after that is to get reelected. And to do that, they have to inflame their base. They have to do this thing where they keep us constantly at each other because they're, they're like teams on a football field competing with each other for power. Tony Evans said, we don't wear a jersey, we wear the stripes. And then when we change the stripes for the jersey, we exchange authority for power. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, and and by virtue of that, I grant to you, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And when we exchange authority for power, we diminish the value of the kingdom. John didn't get into some big argument about authority or any of that because he understood his authority was from God. Instead, he lifted up Jesus, and Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw them into myself. So watch what he does. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, here's what he says about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no one else that you could say that about. This is he of whom I, on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is of higher rank than I, for he existed before me, preexistent Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest in Israel, I came baptizing in water. My calling was to make him recognizable. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. I mean, it just doesn't get any clearer than that. The preexistent Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right there in those little verses, you see the whole context of the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he was about. Got it? But notice he said, go back to verse 33, he said, I I was sent to baptize in water, and Jesus comes to baptize in the Spirit. And, and, you know, that's something we need to uh, uh, 
understand and recognize and, and why John's baptism was different from Jesus. Because John baptized with water, Jesus baptized with the Spirit. That means that John would call people to repentance and they would go down into that water for purification. But when they came up out of that water, they were going to have the same problem they had before they went into the water. Because it wasn't going to be long before they were going to need to repent again and again and again and again. And so by virtue of that, John's baptism was always temporary. But Jesus didn't baptize only with water. He baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so that when we come to faith in Christ, we become filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus said in, in uh, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that power is the power of a transformational life. In that moment, I am forever changed. The Ezekiel said, he rips my heart out and he puts a new heart within me and I become new in Christ. And all of those things that were older pass away and my life from that point on is forever changed. That's a completely different kind of baptism. And so let's talk about what that means for us today. The first of all that we need to understand is that baptism is always used symbolically. Baptism is not what saves you. We're saved by grace through faith. Uh, look back at Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, and by the way, this is an important feature of salvation, of belief. There are no secret saints. You have to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. It says, and you'll be saved. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth... He confesses, resulting in salvation. And so baptism then becomes a symbol of that belief and confession, right? And it symbolizes several things. So let me walk through these quickly. First, it symbolizes commitment. For me, it's exactly like a wedding ring, right? A, 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 ring, a, a wedding ring symbolizes a commitment. It symbolizes the commitment. The wedding ring isn't the vow. It symbolizes the vow. If I were to take this ring off and hand it to someone else, you wouldn't be married to Amy. Because it's the vow that's important. By the way, let me just say this. Some of you dads who are about to pay for a wedding, you know the average wedding's like thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars now. The only part that is absolutely essential are the vows. And the only one who leads them through the vows are guys like me, and we're free. We can save you a fortune. We can get this thing done. The expenses in the food and the flowers and the this and the that and the decorations and the venue and, and all of that other stuff, you can cut to all that. Just show up in my office five minutes, we got you out of there. You're on the honeymoon. I don't think that's going to play well with the women, though. So anyway, do whatever you want. But it, it's all about the vows. You can do, you, you're going to be married whether you walk down an aisle or not. Whether dad says, who gives this woman to be married, her mother and I. Uh, whether the pastor gives a homily or, or if there's a unity candle or even if there are rings, you can, it's all about the vow. The ring doesn't make you married. In fact, one of the things that we always say at the wedding is, is there a ring? Because if there's not a ring, we're not going to stop the thing and quit. The ring is only a symbol. 
And that symbol is a constant reminder of the value made. Like I wear this ring now and I've had it on so long that my, my fingers kind of grown around it, you know. And so even if I take it off, I can still see where the ring was. And it always reminds me that there's never been a point since that day that I took those vows that I wasn't in that relationship. And sometimes we need that because especially in our spiritual walk, there are times where we go through stuff or we do stuff or we wonder, how could I really know? Am I really safe? And it's so important to be able to look back and go, no, no, no. There was a time definitively in my life where I gave everything I understood about me to all that I understand about God. And I sealed that forever with that symbol of baptism. But it's not just to remind me, it's to remind everybody else. Because when you see that ring, you realize I'm in a covenant relationship with another person. And it reminds the world of that. You know, we messed up baptism when we brought it inside. All the baptisms in the Bible were done outside, in the community, in the marketplace, visibly open to everybody. Because if you saw that butcher go down in that water, you expect your meat to be weighed differently afterward, right? You saw that banker go in that water. You got some different expectations about interest rates and loan fees and all that stuff because you expect transformation from the people who come up out of that water. And there's an accountability to that that's very important that we are reminded of. But it's a symbol of the commitment, and that's why it's so important that we immerse in the water. And that's why we do it that way. Immersion in the water says... I am immersed in Christ. I'm not, just, I'm not just wading into the shallow end. I'm not just sticking my toe in the water. I'm going all in. I'm all under. But let me say this, okay? And, and as a Baptist, I, I, you know, I may lose my standing in the Baptist world. I really, I, I don't think God is going to freak out about how much water is used, Okay? As Baptists, submersion, I'll tell you why we submerge, okay? But if, if you weren't submerged in your baptism, you know, maybe you were a dry clean Baptist like a Presbyterian, and uh, you're going to show up at the pearly gates and Peter's going to say, man, I'm sorry. I mean, you did everything right. You just, you just didn't use enough water. You know, we'll get back to you. We got maybe a shallow pool over here. We're going to stick y'all for a while, we're Baptists. We baptize by immersion. Why do we do that? Well, because it's the symbol of commitment. And we ask everybody that comes into our church to be baptized that way. Not invalidating where they came from, but we, we baptize by immersion. First of all, because the, the word baptize itself means to immerse. It means to submerge. The, the word baptizo in the Greek, it was a Greek word. It, it had to do with ships sinking. The Titanic got baptized. It went all the way under. That's the idea behind it. You're saying, well, then why did they translate it baptized? You see, there was no word called baptism. Uh, what they did, rather than translate that word out of the Greek into the English, they transliterated it. They took a Greek word and turned it into an English word, baptized. It's really baptizo. It means to immerse. You're like, well, why did they, why did they do that? Well, because when they came to that translation, a lot of churches weren't submerging anymore. They were sprinkling or pouring or whatever. And so they said, oh, we better, we better generalize that word. So they took a, a Greek word, which means to immerse, and they turned it into a word that could mean any amount of water anywhere. 
splash sprinkled hose dunk. It wasn't John the Baptist, it was John the Immerser, John the Submerger. And every baptism in the New Testament was done by immersion. Jesus was baptized by immersion. Now, obviously, you know, you run into these weird exceptions, right? I was in Africa teaching in uh, Katali, uh, Kenya, and I was talking to these pastors uh, about baptism, and they're like, uh, how should we baptize? And I was like, always by immersion, always by immersion. Every baptism in the New Testament was by immersion. And they're like, you could tell there was like this fear that kind of went through the crowd, like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, what? What's going on? And they're like, we don't have enough water to do that. And I never thought about that, you know. They're like, we don't have pools of water and rivers. We get our waters out of wells that we pump the water. I was like, well, then how do you baptize? They said, well, we'll have a guy lay down on the ground, and then we get all the water we can, and we pour it all over him. I said, so is his back saved? I mean, you know, because it may not get wet, you know. We talk about baptism as total submersion, but I got to tell you, 90% of the people I see get baptized, this part of their head is it's still lost because it never goes all the way under. It just kind of goes, whoosh, and they come up dry right here. There are, obviously, there are things that we have to do to get around it, but immersion is the best symbol of commitment. I mean, if you're wading into this thing, you're not really going in. It's, it's an all-in. It's a diving in. It's a, it's a complete immersion into the relationship with Christ. And, and by the way, it is the symbol of the commitment we made. This is why we don't baptize infants, because infants can't make that commitment. And then baptism is a symbol of submission. I mean, we talk about Jesus being our Savior but Romans says that everyone who wants him to be the Savior must also confess him to be the Lord. And some people want to follow Jesus without being baptized, you know, kind of quietly in my heart. I'm just going to be kind of a, a quiet guy because I don't want to submit to baptism. I don't want, I don't want the whole world to see that, right? Um, first of all, confession is part of belief. And secondly, baptism is an act of obedience, I always talk about it like it's a baseball game, right? First base is salvation. Second base is baptism. Third base is growing in the Lord. And four, uh, home base is spiritual maturity. And there's a lot of people who want to skip second base. I talk to little kids about this. I'm like, okay, what's the goal in baseball? Score a run. How do you score a run? You got to touch home. So God's plan for every one of us is spiritual maturity. He wants us to make disciples. But I got to touch first base. So, so say I get a hit and I'm on first base and I've received Jesus, okay? And, and my goal is to get to home base as soon as possible. The person behind me gets a hit. Can I just run straight across the infield to third? And they're like, no. And I'm like, why not? Because, why? It's quicker. No, because it's the rules. You got to touch second. Okay, so you get a hit, then you run to second, baptism. Then you get a hit, you run to third. You got to run the bases in order. And a lot of people want to know Jesus and they want to grow in Christ and they want to be spiritually mature, but they won't do the first act of obedience that God calls them to after salvation, which is to be baptized. He calls us to that. And you can't really expect to grow if the first thing you do is an act of disobedience. It's a humbling thing to be baptized. There's this great story about this guy named Naaman who was a general in the, in the Ammonite army. Um, and he was a very powerful man, five-star general, five-star ego, and he had leprosy. And he got word that there was a prophet in Israel named Elisha 
who could help him. And so he loads up his treasure chest to pay the prophet off. He gets a, a letter from the king and he goes to Israel and he shows up at Elisha's door with all of his retinue and all of his medals and his swords and all that junk and all of his guys. And they bang on the door. Naaman is here. And Elisha doesn't even come out. He just sends out Gehazi, his servant, says, go tell the guy to wash seven times in the Jordan River and he'll be healed. He'll be cleansed. And uh, Naaman's like, this is in 2 King 5, and Naaman's furious because, first of all, he expected some prophetic fireworks. You know, I, wanted to, I expected a big show and instant healing. Didn't get any of that. Secondly, he didn't even dignify me by coming out and talking to me personally. He sent a servant out. That's humiliating. And then he wants me to wash in the Jordan River. I mean, that's to be like washing in the Washita River. Washing in the Bayou Desire. After you get out, you need to take a shower. The Jordan River was muddy and nasty, and Naaman's like, there's better rivers everywhere. And, by the, and anyway, why should I have to do this menial thing of dipping seven times? And all of this is a shadow image of what it was going to be in the New Testament. Fortunately for Naaman, his servants kind of talked him down from that, that pride ledge, and he wound up doing it, and the seventh time he comes up, and he's free of leprosy. But it was a humiliating thing, you know. A lot of people are like, I, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to do that baptism thing. It's, look, it's meant to be humiliating. Because if Christ is to be your Savior, He has to be your Lord. And the first act of bending the knee is in submission to this thing called baptism by obedience. Spiritual maturity is making more of Jesus and less of me. And then baptism is a symbol of purification. I think it's in, in, interesting in Naaman's case that he wasn't healed. He had a disease. He wasn't healed. He was cleansed. And I can't tell you how many people who come up out of the baptistry come up cleansed. And you can see it in their faces. You guys who've baptized a lot of people, it's such a joy to see what it looks like when a person has been purified. You know, in this culture, it's a cancel culture. You can't get cleansed anywhere. You get cleansed here. It's not the water of the baptismal that does that. It's the relationship with Jesus, but that symbol brings it home. And then baptism is a symbol of new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that's the very image of baptism, Right? And I think it's another reason why we should immerse. Because we always say this when I baptize somebody, I always say, buried with Christ, risen to walk in new life. You see, when you go under that water, the symbol is I've died to my old self. And when I come up out of that water, there's a new person living here. And that's the beauty of the transforming process of the gospel. And that's why baptism becomes such a powerful symbol of that. And that's why we're called to it. Not only for your sake, so that you will appreciate the purification of, the, of, of what grace does, so that you'll appreciate the newness of life that grace gives you, but so that you can then visibly express that in a tangible symbol. Yes, it is only a symbol, but symbols are important. The American flag is a symbol, but that symbol is important. The Pledge of Allegiance is a symbol, 
but that symbol is important. My wedding ring is a symbol, but that symbol is important. And this symbol is important because it not only declares to you what has happened in your life, but it declares to all those people who see it that in Jesus Christ, you'll never be canceled. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, God will give you a new life in Christ. And that's why we only baptize one time. We don't baptize rededications. You're like, well, what if, uh, what if I start doing some stuff, you know? Uh, let's go back to marriage. What if I do some stuff? And I made a vow to Amy. What if I do some stuff? Do I, do I, every time I mess up in my marriage, do I put another ring on? How many rings are you going to wear? It's a symbol of one vow, one commitment. And it's a, a symbol of your conversion. That's why uh, Ephesians 4, 5 says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You're like, what if I'm not sure I was saved? That's different. If you're not sure you were saved, if maybe you had an experience or you threw your pine cone in the fire or, or you know, you got caught up in a revival that was emotional, but you know you really didn't give your heart to Jesus. There never been any sign of change in your life. Well, then, yeah, now you're in Christ. Get baptized because what do we do? We run the bases in order. And if you touch second before you touch third, then you need to go back. I mean, first, you got to go back and touch first. And then you go to second base, right? And so if you're not sure that you were a believer, nail that down. Quit worrying about it. People are like stressing out about it. I just don't know. I just don't know. I'm like, well, either confirm it in your heart. And there's this beautiful verse in 1 John that says, if in this thing our heart condemns us, know that God is greater than our heart. Sometimes there are things that I'm going to do that are going to cause me to question whether God still loves me and has a plan for me. And I got to settle that by trusting what God says about me more than what my heart says. But... If I can't get there, then resolve it. Get it done, get baptized, and move on to spiritual growth and maturity. And let God show you what he has for your life. It's an act of obedience. That's baptism. And so let me ask you, do you need to be baptized? Have you given your heart to Jesus Christ, but never followed him in believer's baptism? then you need to be baptized. It's time. We'll take care of that. Maybe you gave your, you, 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 maybe you made a commitment, but you knew at the time you were just following a crowd or pleasing somebody else or doing something, but you know it wasn't real. And you know since then Christ has become Lord of your life. Well, then settle that. Now, don't live with all that confusion. Just settle it and say, it's time for me to get really baptized. And for my baptism, if, if you got baptized before you got saved, you just got wet. But this time, let, let it be a symbol of your conversion. God's got a beautiful plan for your life. It includes baptism. It's a humbling thing, I know, but it's what God calls us to do. You ready? If you need to be baptized, are you ready? I want to pray for you, and then after I pray for you, we're going we're gonna to allow you to respond. Father, thank you for John the Baptist, John the Immerser that we are immersed in this thing called faith and that we walk in it and that it symbolizes everything that you have done in our lives. And I thank you that, Father, you are the one who will never cancel us. No matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've done it, the minute we come to you, we're healed and forgiven and restored and you gave us this beautiful symbol of baptism 
to remind us of that. And I pray for those that need to be baptized. Today, they stop putting it off. Today, they would make the decision, this is what I'm going to do. And Father, you be glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.